0: Hundred and fifty-eight, First 1 Corinthians eleven, one through sixteen. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Now I commend you because you remembered me in everything, and maintained the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. This is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord women women nevertheless, in the Lord woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as a woman was made for man, so man is now born of woman. All things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is disgraceful, disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Maybe never a less confident thanks be to God. Uh, <laughs> <clears throat> do you feel that like a thank. thanks be to God, I guess? Um, hey, let me just acknowledge the irony of Trying to give us clarity on men and women in ministry and using one of the most obscure passages, I, I get it. Maybe one of the top 10 obscure passages, but um, I think there's something really beautiful there for us. But by way of hospitality, let me just kind of catch you up. Um, if you haven't been with us before or it's been a couple weeks, we've did a quick three week series on the church, really kind of aiming at how would we think about both the structure and the servants of God's church. So we started first Corinthians 12. Uh, just looking at the structure of God's beautiful design in his body, that we would be made up of interdependent parts. And bigger than just our role in that, we stopped for a while and just noticed, hey, he is the head of the church. He is the head of the body. So to talk about the church is to talk about Jesus. That's where we started. And then last week, we spent a little time in that structure to talk about the role of elders and deacons in the church that God has given specific roles for us. So we have these interdependent parts of uh, hands and Uh, feet and all these different places they're equal but they're different so God's given leadership to the church equal but different and so we walked through the role of a deacon role of an elder we cruised through it real fast last week and it'll be things that we unpack in the months to come but we stopped there and then part of this conversation is about women leading and what is what is their role and how do they function in the life of the church and so again there's a a one-page document on that QR code from the reading guide that will give you some overview as well as an eight-page document that will kind of give a survey of women leading in the church. So, So again, I've kind of made a joke about the obscurity of this, but there is a ton in this text that is fairly confusing. I don't know if anything is not debated, to be quite honest. Which should give us a lot of humility as a people as we try to ask, how do we live into God's good design in the church? So, This is not about one denomination being better or smarter than another denomination or one tradition being superior to another tradition, we should come at this really humbly and really slow, hopeful and confident, but not in ways that are engaging with the text that would somehow push one scholar down to elevate another. There are good, godly scholars that disagree, again, on almost every point that's being made in this. So you just got to ask, like, what do you do with that? Like, what do you do with a text like this, right? There are so many things in here, right? Even, like, the beautiful glory of the Trinity is such an amazing orthodox doctrine but to put that in this conversation doesn't actually bring a whole lot of clarity it makes it even maybe more mysterious to mention prophecy like there's not a unified understanding of that you've got questions in here about authority you've got questions about hair what's cultural there's things he says like this is so obvious and you're like not obvious to me and so you have like is this about man buns Is this about bobby cuts Is this about burkas like what are we doing with a passage like this, right? So there's things that he says that are obviously cultural, but it's not obvious where the cultural things start and stop. So if you're reading that and you're like, I'm not exactly sure what to do with this. I just want to kind of bring you into some of the tension. Scholars would go to the background as well. There's things about like first century prostitution and how a prostitute would either shave her head as part of a temple cult or, or let her hair down. And you're like, which one of those applies in this text? There's just a ton in these spaces. Again, I just want to notice things he says that are obvious that are not quite obvious to us. So, so what do you do? You've got a couple options. One is just like turn the page and go, Poof, I, I don't know. You could just keep going, right? The other one would be to actually dismiss it, not just as obscure, but as irrelevant. I was obviously, this first century rabbi, something very cultural going on there. There's no application to us. And you just... Turn the page. It would be like uh, you hit in verse Peter five where he talks about greeting each other with a kiss of love, and you go like, that'd probably get me fired. I don't know if I could do that at work. But you don't just say, I'm not going to do that. That's obscure. You stop and say, what about that would apply? What's he saying? What's the principle behind that? So we wouldn't express affection or desire to be with someone in their presence to value them and dignify them. We wouldn't express it that way, but you should stop when you read that passage and go, so how would I express that? Is it like a lingering fist bump or is it a big hug? Like what what's the way that I would show this kind of dignity and affection that we're told to in the scriptures, right? That's an illustration. I think that's the way we should engage this text. So so you could dismiss it as obscure, you could dismiss it as just culturally irrelevant, or you could stop and say, Hey, what is the principle going on here? And how do we actually engage that for our good? Which, obviously, I think that's the way we should engage this text. To stop and say, hey, what, what is clear in this? How would we actually engage it? What does it mean for us to move forward? And again, when you hit stuff that you don't quite understand, you, you have options. Right? You can just move forward. But, but maybe students, may I may just kind of use you as an illustration. Think about Spanish or math class. When you hit a section, you're not quite sure what to do. If you just like keep going without getting clarity, you're in big trouble weeks and months later, right? Because these things build on each other. These are not just isolated ideas here. How men and women relate shapes almost everything. And whether you're married or single, whether you're in the church, in your friendships, we have gendered expressions of our relationship with God. And so if we just move on without getting clarity, things will build and stack on us. And I think we'll find ourselves in tough situations down the road. So just to motivate us a little bit to stay in this passage, I think what we want to look at is what is actually clear. There's a couple of things that I think are, are really obvious in the text that, that we can agree on. Let me just give them to you real quick, and then I'll pray, and then we'll work through the text. So, so the first thing that's obvious is that women were actively involved in the gathering. Otherwise, you wouldn't give them instructions on how to be actively involved in the gathering. So, whatever you think, whatever your tradition and background is, this text tells us that women were actively involved in the worship setting. So, that's one. Second, there's obvious the difference between men and women. There's, he goes out of his way to define that lots of different ways, but, but it's obvious that there is a designed difference between men and women. That's clear. What that difference is and how we express that, not as clear. That there is a difference, that's really clear. The third thing that's clear in the text is that there's something about that difference that God's designed where there's some sort of authority that men have. It's not clear where that starts and stops. It's not clear if that's just in the home or just in the church or how that plays out. But it's clear that there is something in God's design that there would be an authority that men would have. We'll unpack that. And then the fourth thing that's so beautiful and one of the reasons why I want us to be in this passage is God has designed us to be mutually and interdependently connected to one another. It's really clear. It's where he ends this passage is the way that we share because of how we're made. Both that, that Eve came from Adam first, but then every man since then has come from a woman puts us in this space where we are mutually and interdependently connected to one another. Now, How we live that out? Lots of options, lots of disagreement, but that, that is the point of the text it is clear. So what I want to do is focus on those four things. Women being actively involved in the gathering. Naming the difference between men and women. Talking about God's design, that there would be some sort of authority given to men for them to help and serve. And then what it looks like for us to live kind of mutually interdependent in the gathering and in the church. So that's where I want us to focus because I think that's what's most clear. And if you're looking for principles that transcend culture, I don't know if all of them But that's a pretty helpful place to start, especially as we think about the kind of church we're aspiring to be. So let me just pray for us, because I realize as I'm saying those things, there's nervous laughter, there's, some of you aren't laughing at all, some of you have your arms crossed and you're just waiting for it. So let's just ask God to help us in this space as we engage his word. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we just pause here strategically to ask for your help. We've said that the church is about you, we desperately need to see that. We need to see how this is about you. We need to see how this helps us understand you. The church is your design. It's your bride. It's it's your body. You are the cornerstone of the building. You are the vine and we are the branches. All of the source and substance comes from you. So so we ask for your help now. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, would you help us engage this passage and more than just get through this text, would you help us be the kind of community that reflects your heart for the the world, that reflects your heart for one another, uh, that actually responds to you the way that you have designed us. So so some of us will need correction and rebuke. Some of us will need healing and comfort. Some of us will need some sort of confidence in your word to be able to move forward uh, because of the things that have happened in the past and we're, we're really nervous. All of us will need your spirit to speak to us Uh, so we can understand what you're calling us individually to do. So so we ask that you would help us in this moment. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, point number one. The women are actively engaged in the gathering. Look with me starting in verse 1 of chapter 11 in 1 Corinthians. It says, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. Which some scholars see some irony there because Corinth is kind of a mess. If you've been reading it with us, you've seen all these different places where where they're struggling. But there's at least some desire to say, God, what is your plan? What's your design? What have you always done? Verse 3, But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife or woman, you could translate it both ways, who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as her head being shaven. Okay, the first point I want to make is just clear in all the obscurity, all the things that are cultural, all things that are confusing, you see in this text instructions for how women are to engage in the gathering. And in that space, I want to just name, that is what you see across the scriptures. When you survey the Old and New Testament, you see significant female leadership in the church and in the Old Testament. You see instructions, you see stories, you see warnings, you see examples of of women that are the ones who are faithful in the community. I mean, from the ministry of Jesus all the way back to the very beginning of the Old Testament, you see women not just orbiting or being the kind of like supporting cast to the man's role. You see women actively engaged you see women prophets you see women teachers you, you see women judges you see women using their courage to to help and to heal and to deliver you see strong women throughout the scriptures and what I try to do was give you some sort of survey of that so if you haven't read it uh, it's a little bit clunky but I think it's a helpful not exhaustive but helpful survey of what I'm talking about if I just said that and you're like I don't know I've never heard of Huldah the prophetess in the Old Testament, which most of us haven't. Most of us hasn't looked at the conclusion of Romans 16 and just seen the number of women partners that Paul names in that space. And so, so if you've never seen the scriptures through the lens of the way women are involved, I would ask, like not plead with you, you do whatever you want, but I would ask you to read that document. I think you'll be served by And at the beginning of the document, I tried to frame it with like five categories. I think there's five ways to engage this topic. So I think we have a diagram to throw up. There's a primitive version in that document. But when you engage a topic like this about women in the church, women leading, women and men working together, if you just start with a passage like 1 Corinthians 11, I think you're doing a great disservice. So, so here's the way I think you should engage it. First is to engage God's good design. Start with how he made men and women, which is why we started this gender series way back a few weeks ago. Like, What is God's actual plan and design? Start yourself in the garden in Genesis 1 and 2. See equality, see distinction, see differences, see both of them made in the Imago day. And then secondly, you look at the entire narrative. Look at the whole story. Watch what's happening. Look over the shoulder of these people. See where women and men work together throughout the life of the redemptive community. Again, both in Old and New Testament. And those narratives inform how we understand these things to be practiced. And that will give us a category third for owning failure. To just stop and say, man, if that's the portrait, that's the design. I haven't lived into that. You haven't lived into that. The American church hasn't lived into that. The ancient church didn't live into that very well. So now we have a whole category of repentance and owning our brokenness, not to dismiss the design or to change the narrative, but to enter into that narrative with the need for redemption going, part of our brokenness is what was in the curse in Genesis chapter 3 of this frustration and struggle between men and women that was going to happen as a result of our sin. Again, it breaks everything. Everything is touched by this gendered reality That we have. So so failure is a thing. And that'll let you again be honest without dismissing passages. Because you'll hit passages that talk about male authority and you'll go, no way. Not never again. Like I was in a situation where that happened and it went terribly wrong. I think the mechanism in that moment is repentance and humility. Not saying that passage isn't true. Say, man, we haven't lived into that passage. Very well. So so failure. And then and then fourth is to actually look at the specific instructions. The specific passages like first Corinthians eleven. First Corinthians 14. That's the passage that says that don't permit a woman to speak or uh, in the church. She has to be silent in the gathering. Or First Timothy chapter two is the passage that says I don't permit a woman to have uh, to teach or to have authority over a man. So you read those passages and then you read this passage that says when they are speaking, here's how they should do that. And you go, "Okay, how do I take these specific commands and how do I put them together? How do I understand? Paul's not crazy. He knows what he said in chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians. So he's not contradicting himself in chapter 14. How do both of these fit together? So you look at the specific passages and ask how, not if. So how do these fit? Not do they. Fit. And then the fifth piece is to keep like the goal or the telos in mind. Like, why would God be doing this? Because the goal of a goal, all of that's in service of us glorifying God, living into His full redemption, and patterning after His love and mercy in our specific lives. So, so what is the actual goal? Where will this whole thing end? How do we think about even the new heavens, the new earth, giving meaning and hope for where we find ourselves? So, so I don't think you just start with the specific passages, and if you do, you miss the whole thing. 11. So design, the narrative, owning failure. So I think that's a way for us to engage it, to bring our questions, to bring our concerns, but they put us in a space where we can be honest about the past, we can be honest about the confusion that we have, but understand that God's given us a larger narrative to kind of anchor us and ground us, and it's a narrative of redemption. So again, the goal is not simply getting the structure right, it's following Jesus, which is what this whole narrative is for and in that history what you have is like battles for the narrative of the bible kind of coinciding with issues with understanding women and how we should kind of move out of a kind of unhelpful toxic patriarchy into something that's more beautiful and a whole lot of babies and a lot of bathwater got thrown out together in those spaces we get a chance to come back and go humbly what is god's word actually calling us to so so women the scriptures say god's given you gifts and they're not gendered gifts. The gift list in 1 Corinthians 12 and in Romans 12 and in Ephesians 4, they're not gendered gifts. They're just gifts. He's given them to you, and your gifting is not a threat to masculinity. It's actually males need your strengths. body. It's not, it's not like that. Leaders actually add to the body. They add to the situation rather than... Take away. So, so there's just this beautiful acknowledgement that women are actively involved in the gathering. And I love that's been our story here. I love that we have a long history of women engaging really well in the life of our body. So that's the first thing I want you to see. And as we think about a model, and I work with our elder advisory team, this is a group of um, two 60-year-olds, two 40-year-olds, um, two 20-year-olds, men, women, people that have been here for a long time, people that are new. We've been working through these passages for more than a year now. As we think about what these texts say, it's obvious to us that women should actively be involved in the life of the church. Okay, secondly, go to verse 6. There is still a difference, and again, that's not a threat. It's actually part of the beautiful design. So look at verse 6 of this passage. It says, For if a wife, and you can that woman, will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it's a disgrace for a wife to cut her hair short or shave her head, let her head be covered. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But a woman is the glory of man. Crystal clear? Drop down to verse, 15, uh, verse 13. It says, "Judge for yourselves, is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it's a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is for her glory. For her hair is given to her as a covering. Okay, fairly obscure in its detail, but don't miss the forest for the tree. There is a difference between men and women.
0: Biologically, I don't have to convince you of that, but but actually it goes deeper than just our bodies. There is a designed difference for men and women. And
1: I know in a culture that can't now say what a woman is or what a man actually is, makes a passage like this really complicated.
0: So living in a world where we're not sure if women can have external genitalia,
1: trying to talk over children's heads in this moment. And that's because if you're in that spot, you're like, what does it even mean to be a woman in ministry? Which kind of woman are you talking about? That makes this passage somewhat confusing, but just notice that God designed us with differences. And it's not simply cultural. There's references to the Trinity, if you go back to verse 3, and there's references to creation in verses 8 and 9. Both of those signal to us this is not just an obscure ancient idea. It's rooted in who God is and how he actually made us. New Testament scholar N.T. Wright says, whether or not they could follow his argument any better than we can, it seems clear that his main aim was that the marks of differences between the sexes should not be set aside in worship. There's something about the way God made us that's beautiful. And again, if you just play it out for a while, that he made us distinct in our gifts, made us a diverse body, then there's something beautiful about even having gender diversity in the church. So, So women are involved in the gathering. There is a difference between men and women. It just seems clear. And saying that lets us step into the church with kind of a family metaphor to think about mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters being distinct and different, serving in different ways based on how they're designed, but not in ways that actually separate equality. You can be different and function differently, operate differently, have different responsibilities, and that not be a statement about value. Like in your family, family, brothers and sisters, in a home, mothers and fathers, there's there's a deep, deep equality and some real differences there. So so that family dynamic helps us. Okay. third, there is something about male authority in this text. So look with me in verse eight. Again, not all of it's clear where it starts and stops, how it should be expressed. That's not clear. But just the fact that it's there is clear. Look in verse eight. For, For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. And then it says, because of the angels. You're like, super clear, Paul. Thanks for throwing in angels there in the middle of it. Which can be translated just simply messengers. Or it could be angelic beings, just to add to some of the challenge there. But just notice, he says, this is the reason why there's something about the authority that God's designed between a a wife and a husband, between a man and a woman that, that God has put in place. Now, we have wildly, I think, exaggerated that.
0: I think the scriptures are clear
1: that God has a unique role for women and men, and I think we have wildly exaggerated that. But we shouldn't erase it in the name of correcting it, or healing from it, or getting back on track. There are other passages that speak of sexed differences in the way God's designed us. Again, this 1 Timothy 2 passage and 1 Corinthians 14, even the Ephesians 5 text of the way husbands and wives are to relate. But our big challenge is that we want to load into the word authority our cultural definition of authority and only think in terms of rank and importance and who has the power who gets the tie-breaking vote? That's the way that we think. And Jesus would say to us like He did His disciples, oh, oh you're thinking like the Gentiles. Stop. Remember in the kingdom of God, the last are first, the, those who are weak are strong. And He models courageous leadership as He washes the disciples' feet and serves them. Matthew and Mark both say this passage where Jesus says, the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve. To give His life as a ransom for many, Mark, Mark 10 says. And you see throughout the New Testament commands to male leaders that are not these prominent, amazing, powerful CEO-type models. They are dying to themselves. So when you come to like Ephesians chapter 5, it speaks of first dying to yourself and then cherishing and nourishing and loving your wife like your own body. And the whole thing that frames that is 521 of Ephesians that says we should submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then it tells wives how to do that and husbands how to do that. So I think if men were starting from this space of saying, I'm going to lay down my rights for you, and if pastors and leaders lay down their rights for the sake of the church, I don't think we have near as much problem as we currently have in the church. And in fact, I think the reason why 1 Peter 5 and 1 Thessalonians 2 and Acts 20 speaks so much of character and heart. We spent so much time last week on First Timothy 3 on what God's doing with the heart of a leader as the primary qualifier for them to be able to lead. All of that begins to make sense when you realize God has put them in a space where they actually have some authority. And we have to redefine it constantly. We're always getting it wrong. But, but if we can load in Jesus' definition of what it means to serve and to lead, I think our whew, bodies relax a little bit And then we ask, well, yeah, if that's what you're talking about, if you're talking about men dying to themselves, I'm in. If you're talking about men holding over women some sort of role of authority where they're the ones who are in charge, all of a sudden I get really, really nervous. So we have to constantly be putting back into our understanding the biblical definition of authority. And it's there in the Scriptures all over the place. Again, Jesus as the head coming and dying in our place to rescue and save us is wildly instructive for how we engage this topic. Okay, so here's the deal. When we do like marriage counseling, we talk about roles. We always talk about the difference between like capital R roles and lowercase r roles. Thinking about what has God designed and then what are the details of how you live that out. Trying to own that based on the time and space and culture and gifts of each couple, it's going to look a little bit different. The personalities, the gifting, the situation, the needs. Like, like if you lived in a multi-generational family where grandfather and your dad and your brothers all were in the same house, what does it mean for you to be the head of the home? It's very different than if you were just to get married and move across the country and it'd be just the two of you. Or if we're pre-industrial, if it's the family farm, like what does working outside the home even mean? If you are outside the home, like all of us die. Like this is how we survive is working Inside the home, right? So the Bible gives beautifully generic, even if they're clear, big R roles. And as far as I can tell, as you survey the scriptures, the only two things that are never crossed, like women are never told to do this and men are never told to do this, is that men are always said to, the, to be the head of the home and the wife is called the helper. Serving, leading, respecting, submitting, all of those are given to both genders throughout the scriptures. The things that aren't ever switched or are never given to the opposite gender. The husband is called head, and the wife is told to help. And that word help, we've said, is this really strong word for someone who's like a necessary ally is the way you could translate that word from Genesis chapter two. Okay, so if those are the big R roles, then every couple gets to answer, how do we live that out? The Bible does not say who mows the grass, who pays the bills, who earns the bigger paycheck, who changes diapers. The Bible does not talk that way every couple gets to figure out the lowercase r roles. Now, if Adrian was here, she would say, all right, Chris, yes, the big r roles, that's captivating, the big vision of what God's called us to, but you have to call them to figure out the little r roles, or they're going to constantly be in conflict. Every couple has freedom, but you have to name and define how you're going to live out those things, even if they change based on if you just had a baby, if you did a job change, you're in grad school, all this stuff, they're constantly in shift, but you have to get clarity on who's doing what, otherwise you'll have conflict. Are you tracking with me so far? Big R roles and little R roles. The bigger roles are given to us by God, brilliantly by design, generic, so they fit based on your economic status, your community, who all is living in your home, how many children you have, all that stuff, it still works and fits. So every couple has the opportunity, responsibility, freedom to figure out how you're going to express that. Okay, I say that because if the church is a family, then we have these big R roles kind of given to us by God, that He's designed the church to be led by leaders in the church. And then we need to figure out how that actually looks. How do you express that in the church? What's clear in the text is that women are participating. There's a difference between men and women and there's some kind of authority that God has given to men in the church and in the home but how you live that out where that starts and stops what it actually looks like on the ground we get a chance as a family to define those little r roles i think that's beautiful it creates some humility and puts us into a space where we get a chance to actually think together about how do we go forward we can hold on to what's clear in scriptures. And then again, as a church, we get a chance to figure it out. So like a classic question that gets asked is like, will women vote at the church? In this new elder model, will women have a vote? And the answer is unequivocally yes, because we're a congregational church and I get one vote and all of our members get one vote. Yes, women will vote in the life of our church. Like there, there's a way that we get to figure it out. Now there are churches that don't have their members vote that's fine, little r role. Figure that out. That's great for you. In our little family, though, we've decided, hey, there's something valuable about the accountability and the participation of the members where they're voting to approve who the pastors are, what the budget is, how we move forward in massive decisions. So we do that in ways that are beautiful. So I'm trying to lead the church like I lead my family. Slow down. Listen. Ask questions. What do you see that I don't see? So that we can benefit from each other's giftings and then move forward. So this is a further invitation into all these meetings, all these Q&As, all these members are like, we're trying to figure out the little R roles as a family underneath what God has made really clear. There's a woman uh, who said that where the Bible whispers, we shouldn't yell. I think it's really helpful where the Bible is saying something, but it's not crystal clear. We should have humility and go slow. What is clear is God's design. What's not so clear is how we should play that thing out. And we get a chance to live into that together in a community. So I want to say that for point number three. And then point four, and Sarah Giles is actually going to come and join me here in just a moment. The fourth thing that's clear in the text is all of this is still kind of grounded and has meaning and has some sort of like significance in the way God made us as mutually interdependent with one another. Look in verse 11 of First Corinthians chapter 11 says this, nevertheless, okay, he's just talked about authority, and then he's like, hey, almost as if he anticipates us going like, God's going, sweet, that means I'm the boss. And he's like, no, absolutely not. That's not what I'm talking about. Nevertheless, catch what he says here, in the Lord woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and in all things they are from God. It's okay, so as if Paul anticipates our broken question and tension. Wait, what are you saying here? Are you saying men are more important than women? Or are you saying there's some sort of unique authority they have that actually would trump and suppress and somehow like put some sort of hierarchy in place that actually diminishes women? And then that space, he says, oh, no, 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 that's not all I'm talking about. Remember that we're not independent of one another. We are interdependently connected to one another, and we get to live that out in the church. I want to ask Sarah to come and share with you just a moment if you don't know Sarah God she's on our team she has been for quite a while she's essentially like the COO of our church like she touches everything that's going well Sarah does and is responsible for in a lot of ways and we've been working together for quite a while in ways that I'm thankful we get to kind of model some of this and I thought you would benefit in the family to hear from a spiritual mom about what some of this could look like and some of the burdens that even she has as we're thinking about this together as a staff so Sarah would you come and share for a moment and then I'll wrap us up.
2: Thanks for having me. Um, So yes, if you have kids, you have very likely seen me um, downstairs doing things with the kids. I thought, what would I want? I told him, I just want five. If you're asking me to say something, I just want five minutes. Um, But what would I want you to hear from me? And I think the first thing would be right from this passage, which is 1 Corinthians 11 starts with, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And then you get down to the end of verse 12, and it says, all things are from God. There is nothing that we will plan for, orchestrate, design, that will remove our dependence on God for everything. We won't outstructure our dependence on the living God. And so when you think about all the different ins and outs, we are interdependent while we are wholly dependent on God. Which means as we live out that reality, we don't outgrow that. We don't say, oh, we got that nailed, so we have no more need for God anymore. We will always be dependent on God. And so I see that playing out in two ways. First, When we talk about the fruits of the Spirit that are reflective of what God calls leaders in the church to look like, they are called fruits of the Spirit, which means it is the Holy Spirit that indwells believers and produces fruit of godliness in our lives. And we are wholly dependent on God to grow that in each of us and we need a, to hear regularly a call to turn and repent when we fail. Turn and repent, turn from things that are not of God towards things that are of God. I loved what, how Rob led us in prayer today, even the things that we wouldn't see, to regularly say, here I am again, Lord. Meet with me and change me. And the other area where I find us to be wholly dependent on God is we will need wisdom to walk this out. I think wisdom is an often ignored topic in different faith circles. We don't talk a lot about wisdom, honestly, because it can be more confusing. If you ever read the book of Proverbs, it will say one thing, and literally the very next verse will be like, and that sounds like just the opposite. So how do we live that out? And I think there's a beautiful invitation masculine and feminine wisdom to walk out life together in the church and you may hear me say feminine wisdom and your connotation may be oh that's just a paltry contribution and I would submit to you that the whole of the narrative of scripture would have a resounding opposition to that that the gift of feminine wisdom in the life of the church alongside Masculine wisdom is a beautiful dance we get to walk out. I don't get asked to um, share with, I don't stand up here and say, oh, I'm going to come and now put on a mask of femininity and now share this with you. I Everything I bring, I am embodied. I, I stand up here, I don't have another kind. Uh, I stand here as a woman submitted to the lordship of King Jesus. And so what overflows out of my life into the life of those around me, as I love on your babies, as I stand here telling you the word of God is beautiful, it is in its essence feminine. It's not, oh, here's this one thing, this is the womanly thing I do, and the rest is just the other stuff. It's all interconnected. I don't separate myself into different parts to do different things. And so I hear that as an invitation for us in the life of the church, that we can walk that out and navigate those different things. I lead our staff meetings because I'm, it's a gift that God has given me. I'm not going to say, I lead our staff meetings. That is a feminine gift. It's me. It's me, Sarah. Sarah. God designed me as a woman, and I have gifts that in the pairing of my femininity and the gifts that I have, that's what I bring. When I taught physics, you could say, oh, well, that would be a typically, that would be how we talk about that, that would be a typically masculine thing to have more expertise in. Possibly you would hear that said. And I submit to you, I loved teaching those kids. And I didn't set aside how God had designed me to do that. I submitted the whole of who I am before the living God. And as I grow in godliness and grace and walking with Him, the expression of that is beautiful in all facets of life. So that's my invitation. You may want it to be, well, what does she think that women should do um, in the life of the church? And I want us to walk out that beautiful dance together um, in all of the variety of gifts that God has given us. So that's my invitation.
1: What I love about what Sarah brings to our team is herself. Uh, And so she does. She's helping with our kids because that's a big need. But she teaches. She leads. We mapped out the sermon series for January together this week. When it comes to issues with care and how we're walking things out together as a family, uh, we're sharing so much of that. The text gives us some boundaries and parameters, but, but we shouldn't exaggerate what's here. There's a lot of freedom that we get to live into, and we get a chance together as a community to figure out how do we live this interdependent life together. So there are some places where um, it's just obvious that we will be stronger when both men and women's voices are engaged and I don't know if I can think of a place where that's not going to be true uh, in a healthy marriage. I, there's nothing I do that Adrian doesn't weigh in on. I don't make a single decision that Adrian doesn't dialogue with me about and wrestle with me with and bring her ideas and strengths to the table. So I can't think of a place in our church that a feminine voice wouldn't touch what we're doing. If it's not good for man to be alone in the garden, so God created woman. I would say it's not good for elders to lead alone. So our elder advisory team is crafting some sort of women's leadership team to come next to our elders as a way to have this spiritual moms and dads functioning together. Little r role, We've got to figure out how to do that together, but I think it could be really beautiful and something I'm aspiring to as we go forward. Okay, so four things clear from the text. And think about them like a sandbox for a second. You have this idea that women are engaged in the gathering. Men and women are different. There's some kind of authority God has given men, and it's not to be disconnected. It's interdependently connected. So you have these four kind of boundaries of the sandbox. It's Jesus's sandbox. So It's not our sandbox. It's not a man's sandbox or a woman's sandbox. It's not Hope Community Church's sandbox. It's Jesus's sandbox. That's what 1 Corinthians 12 tells us. He's the head of it all. And then 12 tells us all of us are invited in the sandbox. Come and bring your gifts. Come participate in the life of the body. Come be actively involved in what's happening inside the sandbox. And then what I love is First Corinthians 13, this chapter of love, means don't throw sand in the sandbox. Don't punch each other in the sandbox. Don't steal each other's toys in the sandbox. Don't, don't boast or be rude. Don't be in spaces where you're stingy or you believe the worst. God gives us instruction of actually how to live in the sandbox. I thought that would get a little bit of laugh. It didn't get any laugh at all. That's okay. I'll come back to it. I'll use illustration better next time. We have this sandbox. You're invited to the sandbox. Don't throw sand in the sandbox. And I think you could conceive 1 Timothy 3 and 1 Peter 5 and 1 Thessalonians 2 as telling the church what kind of leaders it takes to lead and serve in the sandbox. Leaders have to be stable. Leaders have to not be easily angered. Leaders have to be in spaces where they don't believe the worst about people, to be able to lead that sandbox. That's what I want to do. That's what I want to call us to as a church. And what I want us to in the next couple of months is to figure out how to do this together in ways that would give God glory and would be for our good. Because here's the deal. Getting this right isn't even the goal. Honoring Jesus is the goal. We won't make much of being complementarian or egalitarian. Those are not our goals. Our goals is to follow Jesus and to better image him to the world around us, to proclaim hope and pursue transformation and push back darkness. That is our goal. The church should be designed around those realities, and a leadership structure should help us do that, but it's not the actual goal. I hope our structure reflects these truths, but it's not the actual truth. The thing that we gather around is the person and work of Jesus. And I think if we keep doing that, he will nourish us, he will train us, he will feed us, he will correct us, he will give us courage and humility for us to be able to move forward. I want to, with that in mind, move towards communion. And on purpose, we're going to sing the church's one foundation while we take communion to remind us that this whole sandbox is actually his. And the one who says these words, who inspires these to be written, who models this for us, gave his very life for us. So whatever authority means, whatever it looks like to lead, Jesus shows us it's dying. His broken body and shed blood are the foundational place that we get our understanding of how to move forward. That's where I want us to land as we come to communion. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you're in the sandbox, if you are worshiping him, if you're trusting him, I invite you to come take communion. We tear a piece of the bread off and dip it in the cup. And there's a gluten-free station here in the middle, and all the aisles will have those stations. would love for you to come. If you're not a follower of Jesus, I want you to hear God cares about you. What he's doing in this place actually matters, and he wants to communicate his love to you. Don't come take communion if you're not following Jesus, but there's some prayers in the back of the worship guide or on the back of the little bulletin that will give you some examples of what it would sound like to pray. Just ask for God to speak to you. I realize this might feel like an obscure passage. Maybe you wanted to think about something else this morning, but, but I think what's going on in this text is kind of reorienting for us to give us a vision of God actually coming to us and helping us be the people that he wants us to be, and he's inviting you to trust him. If you're ready to trust me this morning, I'd love to talk to you after the service. There'll also be folks that are ready to pray with you outside the doors to the right by those couches. So Christian, non-Christian, life melting down, life going well, wherever you are, let someone pray for you and have somebody minister to you, even practicing this kind of ministry together in the life. Help us live into them in light of what you have done. With the gospel good news of Jesus dying in our place to make a way for us to be healed and redeemed, actually welcomed into the family, would that be the place that we have solid footing. And from there, would you help us repent and have courage and be humble and, and move forward. So minister to us now in a variety of ways. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, come on you're ready.